David Lee Brewer is extraordinary. His model looks would not be out of place on the cover of Vogue. As an operatic tenor, the Houston Chronicle said he sang a stupendous fourth act Rigoletto, thrilling. The audience was so enraptured they began to sing along. More recently, David is in demand as a singing teacher and said, singing was my talent, but teaching is my gift. While I continue to sing on the greatest opera and concert stages of the world, my life would not be complete without teaching. With that, one of its early mentees was an eight-year-old girl where he speaks about destiny having its way. This particular teaching lasted more than 11 years, six of them teaching and living on site. Writing about that experience in his book, Beyoncé, Raising Genius, about which, more later, a critique read, Ten crucial years spent living with the Knowles family, he shows the reader how the dark side of truth and honesty unharnessed threatens to destroy genius. David, welcome to the show. I love opera, and so I would like to know what brought you to this particular art form. My grandmother was a professional singer and my grandfather was a professional dancer. So they were my first teachers. My grandmother was literally the right hand of God. So it was expected that I would sing gospel music. But uh, a lady named Denise Arnold, who was my high school French teacher, decided that I had the stuff that opera careers were made of. And she took me to see Carmen. And uh, that was in Omaha, Nebraska, where I'm from at the Orpheum Theater. It still stands. It's a wonderful edifice. And that experience, um, I would turn 16 uh, that summer. So I was, I must have been about 15 years old. Um, And I I shall never forget it. I, I was sitting in the audience fidgety and uh, irritating the heck out of my teacher, Mrs. Arnold, because I was moving so much. And she asked, David, what on earth are you doing? I said, I'm looking for the microphones. I was looking for the microphones because my experience up to that point had been the black church and everything was sung with a microphone. Uh, and she said, there are no microphones in opera. You have to learn to project using the, the, your own body and uh, voice. And I thought, fascinating, but I can hear him. I can hear the singers as if they're sitting next to me. She said, yes, that's called projection. You know, David operas the most difficult of all the art forms. So I was smitten with opera, ran home that evening, begged my mother to buy uh, an opera. The next day she went out and bought Aida with uh, Leontine Price singing Aida, and the Grace, Bum- Grace Bumbry was the Amneris. And I, began, I devoured this record, just devoured it. I, I, I think if, um, you know, back in the day, you know, the album could have like a little <laughs> sound because you wore it out. And it was I final. Wore it, <laughs> I wore it out. I wore it out. And, uh, but there was one, although Leontine Price is stupendous, I mean, hands down, she is the, the La Stupenda, uh, Italian for the, the, the absolutely miraculously stupendous in her talent. But something about Grace Bumbry's voice grabbed me. It was, it had a human quality. It spoke to me. 
And at 16 years old, um, yeah, shortly before 16 years old, I decided that I was going to meet this woman and have this woman be in my life. Wow. And and I did. And today she is my adoptive mother. Let, let me stop you there because I want to get yeah, back yeah. a sense of what your family life and upbringing was like because okay. it's it's different for a young 16-year-old lad to be entranced by opera. What music was going on in your household and oh my God, what were your Marvin siblings Gaye. like? <laughs> Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin. Uh, I mean, my, I think my, that, that famous uh, Amazing Grace album that uh, Aretha Franklin recorded, that, where it was a live album, a uh, gospel. My mother and my grandmother played the heck out of that album. So a lot of, of, of R&B was going on in my mother's house. A lot of gospel was going on in my grandmother's house. Uh, my brother um, ended up working in steel. Uh, my sister, who passed uh, December 12th, 2019, uh, of cancer um, ended up following in my mother's footsteps and she became a family therapist. So my brothers and sisters and I could not be more different. In fact, in the house, whenever I would sing, which was all the time, sometimes at three or four o'clock in the morning, whenever I felt the need to sing. Well, how did I you discover you had a voice, David? My grandparents, I was three and I was singing the Oscar Mayer Wiener commercial. <laughs> In front of the t- oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. That is what I truly like to be. And if I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, everyone would be in love with me. And it was in 1965. And um, there was this wonderful commercial. It was like a minute long. And there was this little boy and he was just rambunctious and precocious, just like me. And there was the like little dance sequence where he was marching to the song and I was standing in front of the television dancing and singing this song. And my grandparents, my grandfather was sitting in the chair in the living room and my grandmother was in the kitchen. And they both saw it and looked at each other and nodded. And after that, it was decided it was decided. They decided that my career should be in the arts. And they became my first teacher, um, teachers. From then on, I was under the tutelage of my grandparents. My grandfather became my uh, dance teacher. Ah, very important is my grandparents were vaudeville performers. They performed on vaudeville, which is as what uh, variety. My grandmother was a singer. My grandfather was a tap dancer. So they were singing in the family. Yes, they were. There were. Well, she was singing. My grandfather was a dancer. He couldn't sing, but oh my God, he taught me. My grandfather explained to me how important listening was. What it really means to hear and listen and be influenced by the music. It was just amazing. He had a very interesting life, ran away from home at 13, was raised by prostitutes and sent to school. And in the brothel is where he learned the soft shoe. And from there it went on and he became a dancer. And then he and my grandmother met on vaudeville um, in 1924. uh, And my grandmother became pregnant. He loved her and he said, let's get married and, yeah. 
that's that's how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> so at 16, um, had you had any ideas as to what career you were going to pursue, um, if not singing? I must say that I really knew that it was going to be opera. After that performance, I absolutely knew. Um, and um, there was a situation, oh, at 16 years old, my God, so many things happened. 16 years old, I started my professional dance career. Um, I discovered opera and knew that my career would be in opera. Um, I came out as a gay man, as a gay youth at 16 years old. And that was very interesting because my mother was not a fan uh, (laughs) and asked me if I would um, go to the doctor with her. So naturally, I thought that she wanted me to be checked out to see if I had had sex, but that wasn't her idea at all. She took me to our family psychologist, a man named Dr. Dunlap. And Dr. Dunlap tried to discourage me from being gay, uh, to which I said, can one decide? Uh, And uh, then he asked me, what was I going to do? Um, but, but first he explained to me that I would be discriminated against and life would be hard for me and it would not be easy. And I just kind of laughed and said, uh, Dr. Dunlap, have you forgotten that I'm a black man in America? I don't wow. think anything is going to be more difficult than being black wow. in the world. So, and I said that at 16. And so then he jumps and says, okay, well, tell me about your plans. What have you thought about? What, 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 what's going to happen with your life? Do you have a vision of it? At 16 years old, I sat in his office and I told him, I'm going to become an international opera singer. I'm going to have an international career of the highest level. And I one day will live in Europe. And you've proved him right. <laughs> and I... <laughs> You know, it's like... Or proved it right, rather, not him. He was wrong. I proved it right. (laughs) So tell us about Barbara Streisand and the track you've chosen. Oh, my God. Um, Barbara Streisand, for me, is the epitome of excellence. She's just the epitome of it. Um, She's also a study in, in the psychology of performance because she has a terrible fear of performing. Um, so um, because she has that terrible fear of performing, it it made me study uh, the psychology of performance because I wanted to understand.
Human behavior has become a major part of my work. And so Barbara Streisand for me is the epitome of excellence, the epitome, the phrasing. Um, and remember, I was being, well, no, you don't remember because I didn't tell you the story of how I got to Houston, Texas to teach Beyonce. It was through the small voice. The small voice told me to go to Houston. And so I went the next three or four days, I was on a plane and I was in Houston. Several months after that, Beyonce's mother called me. And that's how it all started. But please keep in mind that um, I was raised by my grandparents. My grandmother, as I said, was the right hand of God. So I grew up understanding the still small voice, the power of the still small voice, intuition. Uh, I understood all of that at a deep, deep, deep level. And I was being guided. The entire time I was building Destiny's Child um, and working with building those young little eight-year-old girls into superstars. Um, and one of the things that I was being given was to make sure that Beyonce studied Barbara Streisand. And she actually was the first person that I introduced Beyonce to. Uh, and we began working on the way we were. I had no clue that in 2000. I think it was 2008. I don't remember the year. I think it was 2008 that she would be the artist chosen for the Kennedy Center Honors in America to sing, to honor Barbara Streisand. And that was the song that she sang. You've chosen an, a classical track, um, your first classical track, track of the selection. And it's Bizet. And this is Carmen, sorry, this is Grace Bunbury. Yes. Tell us about more about her and the relationship you have with her. Well, um, it was 1988 when I met Grace Bunbury. I was born in 1963, so that would have made me what? 25? 25. And um, at 16, I wanted to meet her. I wanted her in my life. I wanted to know this woman personally. At 25, I meet her. Um, in my graduate school, my postgraduate school in um, St. Louis. And uh, from that day on, uh, we had become pen pals of, sort, uh, of sorts. Uh, I became very good friends with her parents. And because of that, she took a 
you know, she let me into her world. And um, shortly after, maybe a couple years later, I said, I, I, I want you to adopt me. And she said, well, we'll have to talk to your mother about that. And we did. And my mother said, sure, it's no problem. He's my son. I gave birth to him. I raised him. I educated him. But you are a superstar and can help him. So he's both of our sons now, as of this minute. And so Grace and my mother have a relationship of their own. But I was so intrigued to meet this woman, larger than life, hair to beat the band, eyes, makeup, drama. She is the quintessential diva. And um, when I got in 1994, the end of 1994, this still small voice moment where it told me to teach Beyonce Carmen, well, of, of course, I shared with her the only Carmen that I think is the quintessential one, <laughs> and that's Grace Bumbery. So I gave her the album. She devoured it. And um, by the time she was 16, uh, the end of her 16th year, we had finished studying the entire opera. And then we put it away. Uh, when she turned 19, she got uh, her first movie role. Guess what it was? Hip Hop Carmen. So again, it's prophetic. I'm just doing what I'm being told and preparing this girl with the messages that I've been given. And so at 20 in 2001, she was 20 years old and Hip Hop Carmen debuted. Uh, and that was her first movie role. And she knew the role inside and out, <laughs> inside and out. And I, I want to believe that because we had studied it so in depth, that that's why she got the role.
So you met Grace in person age 25? Yes, 25. And I want to understand how um, growing up from three to 16 now, realising that you want to go and sing and do opera, how was that transition into university, being this little boy who didn't really want to play with the other kids because they want to play... American football and stuff, and you weren't oh interested. You have <laughs> yeah. a wonderful story about arriving at university. Please tell yes. us. <laughs> okay, long story short, I, I make this short because, you know, I, I love these stories. They, they mean so much to me because they shaped me. Uh, but um, as I said, and I think I've made it very clear, I was a precocious child. And uh, very precocious, as a matter of fact. And so my mother thought and believed that I was slipping away from my blackness. And it was very, yes, it was very important to her because I was in theater. Most of the people in theater were my white classmates and colleagues. And I was being celebrated in this world. I was a professional dancer, had studied ballet and modern dance, the Cunningham technique. And I was just surrounded by white people other than my family. And um, I was a member of the um, technical high school in Omaha, Nebraska, where I'm from, which was the very first magnet school in Omaha. And, of course, busing was in full effect, and so the school was full of white people. Anyway, my mother felt that I was losing myself, and so she decided that I was going to go to a black college. And I said, okay, no problem. Howard, she said, no. I said, Tuskegee, she said, no. I said, Fisk, she said, no. Uh, Morgan State, no. I called out every bourgeois Black university that there was, and she said, I'm not sending you anywhere where you won't learn to see people for who they are. So one day one of my friends came over, and he had recently been on a Black college campus tour. Well, Langston University, where I ended up going, was one of the schools that impressed him the most. And he told me that Langston University was full of people just like me, Black people that loved fashion, they were beautiful, they were smart, intelligent, the school was happening, the parties were great. So I thought, wow, okay, so my mother said I could go to this school because she'd never heard of it. And it was in Oklahoma, so she could get in the car and drive to get to me if she needed to. So Here I go packing my things. It's time to go to college. The only way to get there is the Greyhound bus because it's in the country. I didn't really know what the country was because I'm a city boy. So I pack my bags and I get on the Greyhound bus. 21 hours later, the bus driver (laughs) announces Langston University. And I'm like, "Uh, where am I? Oh, my God, what have I done? Well, I get off the bus. At that time, I was modeling for Vidal Sassoon. So I had straight hair. You remember when black men used to wear processed hair? Well, I was one of those models for Vidal Sassoon. So I had processed hair. I had a Camp Beverly Hills t-shirt on. I had blue jeans with holes in the knee. I was wearing white socks and moccasins. (laughs) 
real moccasins, real moccasins. And my my glasses were the exact replicas of Richard Gere's glasses in um, um, uh, what is that movie? American Gigolo. <laughs> those aqua, those aqua blue glasses, schoolboy glasses. I searched the world. I found them in Kansas City. I'm I'm wearing these aqua blue glasses, straight hair, this get up. And I get off the bus and the driver is like, which bags are yours? And I said, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, and that one. So now if you counted all those that ones, it was seven. <laughs> they were all Gucci. Oh. <laughs> all Gucci bags. And how old so, are you arriving at university? I'm 17. No, no, I'm 18. I'm 18. I just turned 18. And I have seven pieces of Gucci luggage. And the man puts my Gucci luggage in the dirt. Because remember, Langston is in the country. Yes. There wasn't any grass at the student union. (laughs) So my Gucci luggage is in the dirt. To show you how naive I was, I decided to, where's the boys' dormitory? The people were rendered so speechless that all they could do was point in the direction of the boys' dormitory. They didn't know what I was. They just didn't know what the heck is happening here. I left my Gucci bags at the student union, sitting in the dirt, right where the bus driver had put them, and walked away and walked to the dormitory, walked in and asked if they have a service, somebody that could pick my bags up and bring them to the dormitory. The man laughed. Suggested that maybe I find someone with a car. Ah, he has one. Maybe ask him. I asked him. Of course, he agreed. But he wouldn't let me get in his car. I had to walk back up to the student union. He drove and waited on me. He put my bags in the car. When he opened the trunk, it was such a mess. And he wanted to put my Gucci bags in that mess. And I'm not uh, OCD, but I can understand the OCD person. Because I was, I was just, I was having a moment. He's going to put my Gucci bag in that trunk. Oh, my God. So he drives back down to the dormitory, unpacks the bags, and then asks me for $20. And this is in 1981. And that was my introduction to Langston University. Well, I called my mother and said, I, I, I hate this place. I want to come home. And I think I must have called every day. Finally, on the last day, she got tired of it. And she said, is it really that bad, David? I said, Mama, it's dreadful. It's horrible. She said, good, stay, and hung up the phone. Oh. By December, this was August. By December, I was in love with the place. On to the stage in your life where you um, begin teaching. And yeah. you somebody um, gets in touch with you because she's looking for a coach her young daughter my phone rings and it's this woman and she says her name is celestine knows well she said that she wanted to that she had gotten my name uh and wanted to know if i would audition her daughter and i asked her how old her daughter was and she said eight and i said oh god oh okay why are all these kids coming to me <laughs> and so i said okay um i'll hear her So we make an appointment, they come to the house, and I bend down to the little girl, and I say, hi, what's your name? She was the cutest little round button face with little fat cheeks. She wore pigtails. 
She had a black um, bib dress, like overhaul overalls, but it was a dress with ruffles. And she had a white blouse on with ruffles. And she had little white anklet socks and black patent leather shoes. She looked adorable with ribbons in her hair. She looked like she could have been like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. I mean, it just was picture perfect. So I bend down and I ask her, uh, what's her name? And she said, my name is Beyonce. And so I said, well, it's nice to meet you, Beyonce. So I hear you want to be a singer. She said, more than anything. And I said, okay, well, why don't you come in? I shook her mother's hand. I offered her something to drink. She said she wanted a glass of water. So I sent Beyonce into the kitchen so that I could observe her. Uh, was she shy? Was she rambunctious? What? She was incredibly shy. So I go into the kitchen so we can have a moment. I reach up and get the glass down and give it to her. She puts the water in the glass and takes it to her mother. That kind of broke the ice. She wasn't afraid of me anymore. Uh, and then she auditioned, uh, singing Home from the Wiz. And I, I just, my, my mouth just fell open. I mean, she sounded like an eight-year-old girl. Big voice. It kind of had a slow wobble that was coming into it because she was applying so much pressure. She would just sing, throw her head back. You know, as they say in the black church, throw your head back and holler. <laughs> That's what she was doing. But I recognized all those lessons and phrasing that my grandmother and teachers had given me. This girl was special. When did you move into the family home? I moved into the family home in 1990, one year later. And I thought I was moving into the family home because it was easier. It certainly was easier for the families to, um, to get to me because I lived quite a distance away from the center of town uh, in Houston. But the real reason why I was moved in is because Beyonce's mother needed a babysitter. <laughs> but I found out, I would find that out later. Um, because I would end up feeding the children, putting them to bed, picking them up from school, teaching six days a week, uh, helping with homework, uh, correcting homework assignments. And, uh, of course, I adored the girls uh, in my group, and I uh, adored Beyonce. So I just kind of understood that God wanted me to be there. I was on tour in Japan. <laughs> and Beyonce called me in Japan and said that, um, that the record company needed one cover song and they had to choose one and that she and Kelly together had chosen, Kelly Rowland, had chosen Lionel Richie's Sail On. And she called me in Japan to ask me if I had any ideas because it was going to be just the two of them singing the song because it had to be done within two hours and mixed and mastered and then turned into the record label. So it was a last minute decision. It, it needed to be recorded very quickly.
cover and something that was very familiar that people wanted and they chose sail on. So with those two songs of uh, the album ended up going, I think double or triple gold. It, it, it did very well. And, and you uh, were and in Japan the, on tour and what were you yeah, singing I was on at the Japan. time? I was in Japan on what tour. What were you singing in Japan? Yes. Uh, I was singing Porgy and Bess. I was the uh, sport and life cover and uh, singing the role of the crab man. And um, yeah, it was actually my, it wasn't my first opera role. My first opera role, of course, was at 23 in Cleveland, singing Romeo and Juliet. But um, yeah, it's, um, I was singing Porgy and Bess. Your second track that you have chosen is another Destiny's Child track, Story of Beauty. This is unfamiliar Um, to me. Yeah, Story of Beauty um, is a song that appears on their second album, uh, The Writings on the Wall. This song is very, 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 very um, tragic. That's what I'll say. Um, It details the sexual molestation of one of the girls in the group, and um, this song details that molestation. Now, the, the, significant, the significance of this song is this song was put on the second album, The Writings on the Wall, after the group broke up. So everybody knows about the big Destiny's Child breakup. And Beyonce decided to sing this song on the album, to include it in the song. And when you listen to the album, The Writings on the Wall, it is the one song that does not fit 
You know, if you and and you, of course, do know a lot about music and and how it's done uh, when when putting together an album, there there needs to be kind of an overall arc of of where the songs are going. Well, this song she insisted on having on the album. had a different feeling about that song but it's it, and that's why I included it because it it really heated got it heated things up it so really heated you things lived up. with the family for about five six years and yeah. you saw an awful lot 
yes. um, which you detail in your book, Beyonce Raising Genius. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us what the atmosphere was like, how you felt living under the family? Because you're living with the family when the success hasn't begun. Yes. And you are part um, of that success. And you yes. see what happens to success and people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first thing, I, I must say this. Um, I'm the one who told Beyonce's parents that this would be a success. They they really didn't have a clue. They knew that she liked to sing and she was like every other little girl. But I, I'm the one who told them, no, she's going to be the biggest star in the world. This group is going to be magical. And Destiny's Child remains the large, uh, the biggest selling girl group of all time. They, re- they remain, um, uh, according to um, what I've heard now. That might just be in R&B uh, or might be in America, but that title has been given to them in print. Living with the family for so long, um, the ups and downs, what for you were the highlights of being part of that other than an observer what did what were the positives that you saw character wise if i had to think of anything that would be positive living with those living with the family was that i was able to take the lessons and become better The only thing that kept me going and brought me complete and utter joy was watching the development of those girls. They were stupendous students. So, David, your final choice is from Romeo and Juliet. Tell us the story behind it. Ah, Romeo and Juliet is my very first operatic role ever. Uh, I was 23. Um, I had just finished um, my studies at Langston University, and I did my audition in Cleveland for the Cleveland Institute of Music at Case Western Reserve University, was accepted uh, and delighted about it. But there was a man in the room during my audition who I just thought was another member of the faculty. He wasn't. He was the director of, of Lyric Opera Cleveland. Uh, and he was looking for a Romeo to sing uh, that season's, that summer's opera, the title role in that summer's opera, Romeo and Juliet. Now, everybody knows the story of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, this is a French opera. Uh, and, of course, we all understand the, the, the history of the, the story and the, the, the Montagues and the Capulets and and the fight and the feud and, you know, it's kind of West Side Story um, in, in English. <laughs> and um, so he chooses me after my audition to sing that title role. And um, that was the highlight, I mean, a, a highlight of my life because it was the very first time I'd ever sung an opera, operatic role. I had only sung a studied opera at Langston University. Um, we didn't perform opera. I performed plays and musical theater, but I had never performed opera. So it was exciting and uh, it was nerve wracking all at the same time. 
So, of course, I called my grandmother, who was had been my go-to person for phrasing and understanding the music. And my grandmother and I worked through every part of the score. Now, my grandmother didn't speak French, and she didn't know opera. But she would draw my attention to certain elements of the music, the rise and the fall of the music. Um, maybe a certain note was... Uh, stuck out or came out. Uh, what does that trill mean? Did you hear that trill? What does that mean? Is that somebody speaking? Is that well, what, what's going on? So she uh, reminded me of how to think about the music and, and was really um, an interpretive coach uh, for that role. Um, she would die um, the same year that, no, 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 she would die uh, in 1990. That role was in 1988. So two years later, uh, my grandmother would pass, and I wouldn't have that knowledge anymore. But um, that's why it means so much to me, because my grandmother was a part of my bringing that opera to life, to the stage. And can you give us a couple of lines from the uh, aria? Yeah. Alle um, uh, soleil. This means Juliet is the sun. He has just seen Juliet. And he's absolutely smitten with her. And he says, uh, L'amour, l'amour, oui, son adeur. Love, love, yes, it's love. Accoublé uh, tout mon être, has troubled all of my heart. This love is troubling his heart. He, 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 he's not quiet. Uh, and then he gets to the aria where he says, Ah, never toi, soleil, astre pure et charmant. And that is talking about, um, he, he wants this love, he's talking about it. He wants her to, to awaken and to see him. He's telling her to arise, appear. He wants this love. He, he's hoping that she will like walk down the street and he could see her. Uh, it's a very romantic uh, uh, piece of music and uh, I absolutely loved it. Oh, oh, oh. 
recording of Ah, Levé Trois Soleil is by Jose Carreras. Um, it, it, it's a beautiful aria, a very difficult aria with a high B natural at the end twice. It comes twice uh, and it's very exposed um, and uh, it's very emotional. And you have to be in control of your emotion, but sound like you're emotional. And that's not uh, easy. That's the yeah, that's the difficulty of, 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 of this role. But yeah, so it, it's a very important part of my musical journey because it started the, 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 the actual performance on the opera stage. It was my very first role. Um, David, you've had a fascinating life and you still have a, an exciting career despite the pandemic. I think those of us who are still focused and so passionate about what we do will bounce back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm telling my students all, the star students and the ones who are on their way um, to, you know, music will never die. It will never die. It will The important thing to concentrate on is quality. Seek quality. Because at the end of the day, quality always wins. I don't care if you're a basketball player, a track star, a musical artist, or a doctor. Quality is the name of the game. David, if you could go back and speak to that 16-year-old self, the 16-year-old self that discovers opera for the first time, what would you like to go back and say to him? Your beginning does not determine your end.
Mm-hmm.